Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Sunday to you, Mike McNamara for a Sunday edition of All Marine Radio. Um, hope you're having a good day wherever you're at. A relaxing day here on a Sunday, but uh, uh, interesting times we live in, so thought I would do something today. And uh, the first thing you're going to hear is uh, a conversation I had with Will Costantini and um, Costantini. And Will's been kind of tracking this stuff economically. And so we have a discussion about oil and the implications of eliminating Russian oil from our market, the complexities of why we don't have interchangeable pieces relative to oil, um, the issue of moving oil from one port to another, and so how all this plays into what we pay at the pump. We also talk towards the end of this discussion about elections and this green dream that people have is going to be crushed by the Ukraine-Russian war. It's going to be crushed in Europe and it's going to be crushed in the United States because there is no, there is no other thing to rescue you know, parts of the world that are dependent on fossil fuel. And so, you know, there's going to be an interesting discussion about nuclear energy. And then, you know, Elon Musk said it yesterday, we've got to produce more oil. You know, he said, you know, I hate saying this as somebody who believes in the future of, you know, electrical cars. But in the short term, we've the nation has to do it. So, um, anyway, so interesting discussion with Will uh, that lasts, I, I think, 35 minutes or so. And then uh, Jeff and Tim will join me 
and uh, we'll talk about a couple of interesting things. Uh, one is those evacuation corridors. What is going on there? So Timmy's going to get after that. And then uh, some really interesting stuff. If you're following the fighting, um, essentially in the north, in the northeast, in the east, the Ukrainian military has fought the Russian military to a standstill. And you're seeing things that don't make sense. Um, and there's a lot of interesting drone stuff going on. So uh, just going to kind of take a look at that. What kind of drones are they using? You know, what are they hunting with these drones? Are they hunting frontline units? Are they hunting the closest alligator to the, to the boat? Are they hunting fuel and sustainment stuff? How are they doing it? So uh, interesting stuff relative to the fight. So uh, we'll take a look at that. And uh, without further ado, here's Will. Uh, he's driving today, but uh, Will and I have had a couple conversations and uh, thought you would uh, find the subject matter interesting. Uh, so, Will, first of all, you've been you've been kind of dragging us through the economics of this, and um, we were talking about Russian oil and how do you parse it from the the world market and things like that. Interesting. In the last what six hours or so, I've seen that. Uh, that I guess longshoremen in the United Kingdom would not offload Russian oil from a vessel that docked in uh, in the UK. So uh, simple solutions to complex problems, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Um, but um, let's talk about, um, talk about Russian oil and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, so... I would consider myself not much more than a dilettante about the oil market, but as a Middle East payo, like it or not, you spend a little bit of time around the Middle East, you learn a little bit about oil. So I've always sort of paid attention to it. And uh, I also, I've, I've subscribed to uh, Barron's, which is like a sister publication. It's a weekly from the Wall Street Journal for probably 30 years. And a uh, really good column in there this week that talked about this, uh, and Barron's, it's an investment paper. So they're trying to parse through different markets and different stocks. But the sideline of this conversation I found interesting. So apparently most of the oil that we import from Russia is got a high sulfur content. They call it sour. And we used to import a lot of oil from Venezuela, very similar oil to this. But then uh, due to all the shenanigans down there, we got away from the Venezuelan market. We needed a substitute for this type of oil. And apparently in the United States, uh, certain refineries are tuned to refine this type of oil as opposed to oil that comes out of the ground in Texas, which they call sweet, lower sulfur content. And a barrel of oil is not a barrel of oil is not a barrel of oil. They produce different products on the refining process. And so we've got refineries in the U.S. that are tuned to, to refine this uh, sour, high sulfur content oil. Uh, and so we import the Russian oil because of a policy decision in regards to Venezuela. There's also some, some economics about refining 
in the U.S. Uh, refiners on the east and west coast to get sources of crude. Uh, they would love to have pipelines of crude oil that crisscross the United States, but all those pipelines don't exist. So the oil that's being produced in Texas, for example, Texas, Oklahoma, Midwest, gets typically gets refined in and around Houston and, sorry, and, uh, and also I think refineries in and around New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. If, if the refineries on the West and East Coast want to get that oil, it's prohibitively expensive to ship from the Gulf to the West Coast of the U.S. or the West Coast of the, uh, or the East Coast of the U.S. because of a thing called the Jones Act. The Jones Act, I think, very simplified, basically means if you move a cargo from a U.S. port directly to another U.S. port, it's got to go in an American flagged ship. And American flagged ships, transportation costs are much more expensive than your typical foreign carriers, which are flagged in Liberia, Panama, and everywhere else because of labor laws, safety, OSHA, uh, Coast Guard, etc. And so we've got internal American economic policies, i.e. the Jones Act, to protect a pretty small American maritime industry, and then also international economic policies, i.e. not supporting the regime in Venezuela, that drive us to accept Russian oil uh, for refining and eventual consumption in the U.S. market. And so it's a great um, headline politician sort of thing. We need to stop importing Russian oil. It's a little more complicated than that. And I'm not trying to make any kind of moral argument here at all. It just, it's interesting to me that you got to go sort of to an investment uh, sort of newspaper newsletter to get a little bit more understanding of why we do uh, certain things that we do. Uh, so on that, that's about what I know on that topic. And, and hey, Will, what, it's called the Jones Act that does not allow you to to move crude on anything but an American uh, an American carrier. No, no, it's not crude. It's cargo of any sort. Oh, uh, I, well, shit. I, I, yeah, I dealt with this a little bit in Florida, but also when I was in school uh, in the Marine Corps uh, to protect the American maritime industry. If you go U.S. port to U.S. port, uh, you've got to have an American flag vessel and crew. Uh, and and I, I think there's more nuance to it than that, but I'm pretty sure that's the, you know, the big blue arrows of what the Jones Act is. So in, in addition to, to – so we're threading several needles, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Trying to, trying to do this. The um, – I was just, you and I were talking earlier today, but I, I just, I headed down to San Clemente where I get my hair cut before I go to Germany. And um, I paid the most money I've ever paid for a gallon of gas. That was $5.20 at the cheapest place in the area that sells gas. 
$5.20 a gallon. Yeah, and so as I cruise across the Midwest, typically Missouri, I, I think Oklahoma has got the cheapest gas prices in the country. Missouri is typically very cheap, but they've become on par with Kansas. And I, I think maybe Missouri raised their gas tax or something. So unleaded in the Kansas City area was about three seventy. When I crossed the Mississippi and Illinois, unleaded was about four nineteen. Diesel retail in Illinois and now in Indiana is about five bucks. Um, you know, something with that, that that's sort of inside baseball within the transportation industry. Think, think railroads and big trucking firms. They have a thing that they call fuel surcharge. So when you sign a contract to move freight with those companies, there'll be a fuel surcharge. And when diesel goes above a certain amount, uh, automatically added to the freight bill is this fuel surcharge cents per mile. And I was talking to a guy that I used to work with down in Florida, and he didn't know the number off the top of his head, but he thought it was in the low 40 cents per mile is the fuel surcharge now down there. And I don't know what diesel is in Florida. It's probably... If it's five up here and it's low fours in Missouri and Kansas, it's probably about 450 or so. So add 40 cents a mile to the freight bill of anything that's moving. And so think a container of goods that's moving LA to Chicago is that is that 14, 1600 miles, 1400 miles maybe? Yeah, maybe. Uh, so, and again, I'm, I've been out of the business a little while. I think an average container may cost, I don't know, 2000 3000 bucks to move there. So, you know, add another $700 on top of that. So add anywhere from, you know, 20 to 25% to the cost of goods. And the shipper is paying that automatically. Uh, so that's gonna, like it or not, it filters down into everything uh, that you buy. Uh, the other thing it's gonna do is when diesel goes up like this, your typical mom and pop trucking company doesn't necessarily have that leverage uh, with contracts to get the fuel surcharge added. So they eat a lot of that themselves and it forces a lot of mom and pops out of business. And uh, I forget the numbers. There are literally five or 10,000 trucking companies in the United States. A whole lot of them are mom and pop organizations. A guy in a truck, a guy in five trucks, a guy in 10 trucks. That um, when diesel pushes five, and look, we just started. The idea of diesel going to 657 is not outrageous. Uh, takes a big whack out of transportation industry. And they're sort of the marginal players out there. Uh, so expect, you know, can another supply chain squeeze as we lose that on the margin capability to move goods in the country. And so what does that open up an opportunity for, for regional and local suppliers? Yeah, but, but 
again, if, um, you know, you've got a hand, yeah, it, it opens up internal to the U S if you can, if you can manufacture close to your consumption market right. or produce close to your consumption market right. and reduce your transportation costs, but that stuff doesn't get turned down overnight, right? Right, right. No, there's going to be some, my, my point is there's going to be some people that will benefit from that economic opportunity, but they won't be able to, their output won't be able to, you know, meet the demand. And so, um, so the vast majority of people are going to have to uh, live with higher prices. Right. Yeah, higher price and shortage. Well, th- and- think about think about that. Uh, so that's me. I fill my tank of gas, twenty gallons at four bucks is eighty at at five twenty. Right, it's a hundred and twenty dollars. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. It's it's a hundred dollars and change. Okay. And so, um, I mean, think about that. So if I do that once a week. Right in Los Angeles, where you, you you tend to drive a lot, a lot. I do not, but I might fill my tank up twice a month. But I mean, I I mean my my gas consumption goes from three hundred and twenty dollars to four hundred to four hundred dollars, um, and that's just my car. And if my my wife's doing something similar, you know, our gas bill goes up somewhere between, you know. 80 and you know 150 dollars in one household a month i mean that's yeah that's amazing a thousand to fourteen hundred dollars thousand to fifteen hundred dollars your electric bill and your gas bill if you heat your home with gas price price of gas in the midwest has almost doubled so add another thousand bucks and change so you just went up 2,000, 2,500, approaching 3,000. So if you're a, sorry, if you're a, uh, if you're a, you know, blue collar, two, two parent working family making 60 grand, uh, you just paid an additional 5% tax bill right there. So let me ask you a policy question. Um, it's been very easy because most of the pe- most of the people in the country hadn't re- been really hit by these prices, you know, when the president made a State of the Union address, and then afterwards, you know, you're hearing the, the questions about fossil fuels and, and this, that, and the other thing. So it's almost a theoretical discussion because most people have not felt the pain that they're going to feel. Um, the reality it, for Europe and the reality of the United States is this green dream— is a dream. It is nowhere near reality, and by attempting to force it down everybody's throat prematurely, all the party in power is going to do is succeed in making people pay higher prices for energy. Um, do you think that that the Ukraine-Russia war is going to ultimately break the bank of the green aspirations simply for very, very pragmatic purposes? Well, I, I think it's, so the green dream is actually a green nightmare. Uh, and it's really war on poor people in many ways. Um, uh, modern fuel and, and elect, electricity and transportation fuel is modernity. And while we've been sort of slow rolled into this, uh, you know, curbside recycling and make ourselves feel good 
and oh look at the pretty windmills and they're free uh all of a sudden the instead of boiling the frog so the frog gets used to it and eventually just sits in a pot and dies we're throwing the frog i.e the poor people in the middle class right into that pot of boiling water and they're going to get scalded bad and that may be the wake up to people that uh I don't agree with fundamentally changing my way of life to prevent one and a half degree of temperature rise during the next century. Why don't I leave that to the future, uh, mitigate any uh, obvious climate effects that are happening? And look, the the climate changes. It absolutely does. And man has mitigated it uh, throughout human history mitigate for minimal dollars today and leave the rich people in the future to solve the problem that they need to solve. Um, you know, I, I talked about this guy Lundborg, I don't know, a month or so ago, I've read a couple of his books and that's sort of his thesis um, that we could bankrupt ourselves today to have actually almost no impact. Uh, and maybe that's gonna become obvious to the average American uh, going forward. You know, the the Elon Musk headline of what, yesterday when he talked about, Uh, um, you know, we need fossil fuels. Well, no shit. Uh, And people say, oh my God, the electric car maker. Well, Elon Musk makes a niche product for rich people, all right? He's not making transportation for the masses in this country uh he knows it i mean he's not a dumbass uh and he wants the country to function because he needs rich people to buy his car and if we turn ourselves into a poor country he's not going to be able to sell his niche uh toy product to rich people in this country um so you know and, and the idea that that we're going to turn the oil industry in the United States is going to turn on instantly in response to these prices. Well, you know, same article, the, the, the guy from Barron's interviewed the CEO of Devon energy. Devon is a big uh, fracking type company and their stock price, I think uh, has gone up 178% in the last year over year. Wow. So the officers of that company are pretty happy. The shareholders are damn happy with it. And this guy said they put a, uh, a production cap uh, in their company 5% going forward. They don't, they are unwilling to make the massive investment it would take to increase their production more than 5%. Uh, he's used to being vilified uh, by the current administration and people in power. Uh, another little tidbit in there is that even if he wanted to increase production that much, uh, it's a nine to 12 month roadmap before significant production comes online. Um, and so, but again, know, fracking, but, but again, Will, if you look at this crisis um, of Russian oil and OPEC, right, having driven shale oil in the United States out of business, right, that's part of the landscape of all of this. Um, then if you look at that, then give me a solution, right? 
you look at people, give me a solution. What's going to make this better? And don't tell me, don't take me down the fossil, the, the, the green revolution pipeline. It's just, it, it's not there. So um, is, is there any other relief out there living with $5 a gallon or higher gasoline? Is there any other, do you see any other solution, pragmatic solution, than, you know, you know whether, whether Europe or the United States likes it, whether the liberals of, 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 of either geopolitical world care for it, there is no other, there is no other next best solution. No, not, not in, in our lifetime and likely a whole lot of our kids' lifetimes. Uh, as they say, we're going to be turning old dinosaurs into smoke. And, uh, you know, what, what we should do, if we truly cared about the climate, what we should do is take the modern westernized countries and increase the use of nuclear power. And then we should take the marginal countries, think India, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and get them away from burning wood. That's how they get their fuel now to heat their homes. Get them off the wood and get them to coal. If they could burn coal, the, their personal environments would be uh, uh, improved dramatically. The number of people that die early because they cook over wood stoves and take in all those inhalants is millions around the world all the respiratory distress they suffer. Turn them on to coal and begin to build an electrical grid in those places because with electricity, they can have modern medicine. They can have lights in the school so they can do education. They can do all those kinds of things. And then some point at the 40 or 50 year mark from now, you gradually shift from coal to natural gas uh, while we have gone nuclear uh, and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. I mean, that's, that's a pragmatic solution, but everything I just talked about, right, none of that happens overnight for sure. Uh, no, but th- there, okay, so the other, the other interim remedy would be, and you touched on this yesterday, uh, when you were talking about OPEC, and you said there's a, I can't remember the price, uh, the term you used for the price point, um, but demand destruction. There you go. And so OPEC then looks and says, okay, look, we've got to produce more, and um, in order to sustain their dependence on petroleum, because if yes. we, right, if we do not, and they begin to say, as much as we detest this. You know, nuclear energy is going to be what we have to get really good at. We have to figure this out. We're going to turn on old plants, and then we're going to build new ones. And that is our ticket out of this shit, at least. And and again, there is no, there's nobody else coming, right? There's nobody else coming. Yeah, so so in that arc, so I had to update my numbers. I, I had thought that demand destruction was at the 140 to $150 a barrel. Uh, that article I, talk, I was talking about, uh, they say demand destruction is probably at about $200 a barrel updated for inflation. So that what that means is when oil goes over 200, that creates 
uh, enough cost that businesses can't can't be profitable so economic activity goes down so it destroys the demand the requirement for fuel um, demand destruction at $200 a barrel now is what they're saying the other thing about OPEC is there's probably only four producers that have slack capacity now Iraq Kuwait UAE and Saudi Arabia a lot of the other big producers have not been making the financial investment required to maintain their fields, Algeria, Nigeria, uh, et cetera. So we can uh, get OPEC to open up the slack and all those wonderfully stable uh, countries that we are in such good alliance with, Iraq, <laughs> Kuwait, UAE, and Saudi Arabia. And it seems like it was only two years ago that we were so happy to not be dependent on Middle Eastern oil and hostage to all the insanity that's gone on there basically since the 70s. Um, yeah. All right. I know you're driving and stuff. So um, what other thoughts do you have before I turn you loose? Yeah, I, Again, you know, you hit it. Is this going to be the wet slap in the face to the American consumer that makes people pay attention to this and uh, get get people with more than a front page headline understanding of what's going on? And I'm not overly optimistic. I was uh, flipping channels earlier just through all the news channels on uh on the satellite radio, just to see what people were talking about. And uh, I was on the Fox Business Channel for about 30 seconds, and they were talking about why are we still importing Russian oil? And I said, oh, this would be interesting. You know, we'll get a little business side analysis. So the person they were interviewing is Byron York. So you don't know the name. He's a, he used to write for National Review. Right. He's a conservative columnist type writer. And so the Fox Business Channel is is interviewing a conservative writer about Russian oil. And I like Byron York, but he knows less about the Russian oil situation than you, me, and the next guy that walks down the street. Right. Uh, but that's the level of analysis that we're getting. So the news organizations are going to be beating this, why are we still importing Russian oil thing, uh, to get the policymakers to cut it off. And then someone, and I don't know what that heavy oil produces. But when we cut off the importation from Russia, we're just not going to have any of that stuff, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and people are going to wonder, why can't I find my product X anymore? Or why does it cost six times what it cost before? Uh, so uh, maybe... This will get people to see this whole thing and understand that it's their future and their kids' future. Well, uh, I, you know, let me we ask you this. Do you think this is an overstatement to say that it will become the number one issue in the election with all the other things that that, that people have, have, you know, COVID, right, uh, the Ukraine-Russian war? The number one issue, in my opinion, for the American people is going to be something that has dramatically 
impacted their lives, right? And and that you're going to have policymakers looking at them and saying, "Oh no, no, you need to continue to pay this because this is good for the world." Yeah, right. You know, and ga- gas prices are funny because you see a thousand of them every day when you drive around. Um, and, you know, typically gas doesn't start going up until, you know, Labor Day, summer driving season. Right. And we get this kind of a shock. Now, you know, the oil futures market is so oil, uh, I think it closed. Well, hold on, hold on. 15. So you never answered my question. Do you think that's an overstatement to say if oil does, if oil goes up and we, and, and we say no more Russian oil and it goes up further, do you think that will become the most important issue in the uh in the election uh yeah i think it'll it'll be immense right so oil is up uh 20 in a month gas just crossed five four dollars or damn close to four dollars in a big slice of america so at 115 oil goes to 145 which we've seen before so it goes up another 25 percent so when the average american and i'm not talking californians is paying five bucks for unleaded i think that's going to absolutely have their attention uh and you know we're in the first week in march where are we going to be on memorial day and then what happens over the summer this could very easily be number one, gas price being the headline for inflation writ large. Wow. No, again, I mean, and, and you, again, what changes the equation? You know, does OPEC all of a sudden decide it's it's going to uh, it's going to pump more gas? They'll have a decision to make. Um, and, uh, and then the, the next question is physician heal thyself, maybe, right? And then you're going to have, then you're going to have a, 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 not only a domestic and regional, uh, debate about that regional in Europe, um, in, inside the EU and certainly, uh, domestically here in the United States as look, we know it's not going to, if you, if you green light the Keystone pipelines and, and you, and you give, and you create legislation that allows them a 10-year window to recover their costs, you know, how quickly can, how quickly can producers turn on the spigot and, and create the independence that we enjoyed a few years ago? And, um, and then you look around and say, what else is coming? And the answer is nothing. Yeah, and... You know, just a little nuance. We, we were not energy independent. Right. We were net exporters. Right. Right. We're always interdependent, but we we're producing more than we consume. Uh, and now, now we're uh, we consume about thirteen, and we produce about eleven and a half bar- million barrels of oil a day. At one point, we were producing over thirteen. So, but we're still interdependent on the world market. Got it. But we were net exporters. Uh, you know, based on the reading with the big uh, energy executives, it's not clear that our production can go up that 10% in the near term. Uh, so we should expect 
that this sort of price shock is going to stay with us for a while. Now, I, I think I have seen some Democrats uh, in the House in particular talking about we need to produce more domestic energy. So they may be getting beat up um, by the people back home. Uh, well, you, you and I, you and I spoke earlier today, and we, and we were talking. Will and I were talking about how quickly the Speaker of the House um, changed her tune when, you know, within forty-eight hours after the State of the Union address, you know, America was still importing Russian oil, right? And all of a sudden, her tune changes on that, and so you, you see these, uh, you see these changes happen, and it doesn't take. A whole lot of uh, of of uh, I don't know what you would call it. A whole lot of turbulence to create the change. So I'm, I'm curious to see how how much or how little it will take to maybe cause this to move as well. Yeah, and and this is the best way to make policy, right? Jerk here, jerk there, up, down, sideways, all within 72 hours. Well, when you, when you do, again, like we were talking yesterday, when you don't have a policy. And, um, and, and and you're stuck with um, reacting to public opinion, and that's how you make policy. Then you right, you get what you get. It is what it yeah. is, and, and that's that's sadly that's the state of American, you know, political po- policy. It's like lick your lick your finger, stick it up in the air. Which way is the wind blowing hardest? Um, okay, let's do that. Gotcha. That's awesome. And and that's what you get. That's what you get. All right, William, I appreciate you taking the time while you're driving. And uh, what is your current location, generally? Uh, I am in and around Dayton, Ohio, eastbound on I-70, passing the great Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. There you go. There you go. My roommate roommate in college was born there, so good for him. Yeah. Anyway. Some of the Wright brothers. Here you are in the American Midwest. There you go. All right, Will. Travel yeah. safe. All right. See ya. All right. You just heard Will waxing eloquent about oil and economics and things like that. Uh, joining me now are from McAllen, Texas. Oh, hold on. From Southern California, Jeff Kenny likes to be introduced first, makes him feel good. I know most of my friends struggle with their esteem, so whatever I could do, I try. Jeffrey? How are you? Where the fuck do you get that? I could give a shit. <laughs> but thank you anyway. And uh, yes, I'm fine. Thanks, man. Well, Jeff is, you know, he just went home for his mother's birthday, and we have to give him kudos for that. He's a good son, and so he's the, he's the uh, podcast guest of the week. So there you have it, Jeff Kenny. <laughs> so, well earned. And coming in a close second from McAllen, Texas is Timothy Lynch. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great today, Mac. Thanks. All right. Uh, and how are things in McAllen? You got a T-shirt on. You're not all uh, buttoned up. What's going on? Oh, no. We're back to weather, regular weather pattern. Things are things are sunny and delightfully cool, given you know local norms and all. Got it. Just in the 70s, upper 70s. Beautiful, beautiful weather. Beautiful day in McAllen. Yeah. Looking for those... Uh, those uh, I got some pictures. I got some hawk predation pictures, man. Those, I, they were those, they were on fire kettles. yesterday. What are they? Hawks? Yeah, yeah they're broadtail hawks. They normally are kettling up to get. I, I always thought it was some type of a of a of a way of migrating, but they're they're here. This is where they migrate to, 
And yesterday, all that kettling activity they were doing, they looked like the friggin' Japanese bomb divers at, at Pearl Harbor. They just started breaking out of these things and going down and ravishing every nest that was up and down our street. And I got <laughs> pictures. It was friggin' awesome. Who, yeah. Who knew you would become a birder? Birder. Um, it's unbelievable. Like e. E. Well, you know, yeah. E. Sledge and me. Good enough for E.B. Sledge. Good enough. Uh, Ken Rogers has become a birder? There you go. Yeah. So anyway. All right. We're going to talk about... Uh, um, current current events and diplomatic events and 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 news and so Tim will talk about that and uh, we're gonna kind of later on when Jeff talks we're gonna talk about drones um, in uh, and drone activity which has been pretty interesting to watch and so go ahead Tim okay starting really mostly what I'm covering today kind of links to what I was talking about the last two days the first one is that uh, Elon Musk has announced his SpaceX. Starlink satellites are getting jammed and they've been able to overcome the jamming signal, but he's now uh, uh, Got all of his brain people trying to figure out how to make this not happen again And I would say he's probably going to figure out something that will be very useful to every country on earth That's a that is a, our private industry <laughs> Stepping up to the plate there. So that's that's a interesting what uh, what else is is important to note is the size of the protests that are happening in Moscow in particular and Russia all over Russia. In fact, in order to combat a lot of this problems with the protests, uh, Putin has announced a law that includes a 15 year jail term for spreading fake news on the army. And uh, that's, that's just to me very, very uh, uh, amusing. And they've also blocked Facebook as best they can within the country. I would like to note, by the way, that in the American school system for high schoolers, Google.org, which is funded by Google, has introduced a lateral reading program called called uh, for high schoolers to give them the tools to spot fake news, which given how much that shows up on Google websites, it's, it's, it's like irony in your face. It's like, what the hell? Um, at any rate, protests in Russia have amounted to at least 2,000 arrested. We don't know what's going to happen to those arrested. It is amazing to me that that many people, when you look on Twitter right now, you'll see these crowds in Moscow. Hard to know what you're looking at, and I'll talk about that towards the end of my monologue here, but it just it's just appears amazing to me. Um, I also talked about the uh, cyber war yesterday and the fact that uh, the Ukraine have urged independent hackers to, to attack Russia, and the hackers at hashtag anonymous did in fact uh, hit the Russian streaming services on, on Saturday. Wink and Ivy, they're like the uh, the net cranes, uh, excuse me, the Netflixes of Russia. They took their feet offline and, and put in footage of Ukrainian uh, uh, battle footage. And I don't know how long they were able to keep that up there, but it was uh, it was interruption uh, apparently countrywide. And another uh, uh, development that that I I kind of knew was ha was going to happen. We already have a New York Times front page article on the amazing American volunteers who are girding up to go over to Ukraine and fight. All of these, of course, are recent veterans. A lot of them have very eloquent things to, to say about what they want to fight. And I think really one of the things that, that we're seeing right now is Americans as a whole have not turned against fighting abroad, just meaningless and hubristic wars abroad. That we don't like. This one seems to be popular with everybody, referencing, of course, the, uh, uh, the stats I, I talked about yesterday with with amazing, well, 46% of the population saying that we should absolutely fight in there if the war, uh, war widens. Um, with this volunteer's guide, by the way, for any of our listeners 
who want to go fight in Ukraine, you can go to Military Times where they put want to fight in Ukraine. Here's what you need to do. And they'll walk you step through step on on uh, on getting over to Ukraine to get your jihad on. I, I find that I'm sorry, but a little bit alarming. Not that I wouldn't want to do it myself. Um, basically, the takeaways that I've that that I've got in as far as the old uh, the old format of what we shouldn't be seeing happening, but is Russian war finances is are have got to be near collapse while Ukrainians seems to have developed a near infinite line of war credits. Russian alliances and relations are in free fall while Ukraines grow exponentially. Russia's military logistics are diminishing by the day while Ukraines apparently are improving. And I don't know how to quantify that. I'm just going from the takes from the news. Russia propaganda efforts are near total failure while you, Ukraine is triumphant in the art. And Russian morale is uncertain as best as near as we can tell why Ukraine's appears to be beyond expectation. And I would add that the, the Ukrainians have been parading Russian POWs on air to, uh, to, to talk to the Russian people about the mistake of coming over there. That again, just to be technical, is a violation of the laws of warfare. Okay, what uh, my main task topic of today was this, uh, the creation of these safety corridors. And the way that this worked out was on March 1st, Ukrainian and Russian officials agreed to creation of humanitarian safety corridors. These were supposed to start um, in, the in the strategic port city of Maripol and extending all the way to the east in Volnovatech. Um, so that's about, that's about 22 kilometers worth of green zone that was supposed to be in effect from 8 a.m. Green, uh, Greenwich Minutes time to about 1600 GMT. That's what the vaguely worded thing uh, uh, sort of said. So in uh, in Maripol, as well as Pavlov, they, the, Donsk, the Donetsk Military Civil Administration lined up the school buses, lined up everybody to evacuate, and suddenly artillery shells rained down upon them. And things were canceled for that day. Then we went to the next day. We've included now Irpin, which is a, 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 a suburb, apparently a nice suburb of Kiev, which not only had yellow school buses to evacuate people, but a New York Times reporter embedded with them. And uh, basically what they said was, as they got ready to evacuate the, the Ukrainian civilians, they were moving them towards the uh, school buses, and suddenly out of the air, artillery shells fell. fell. Back in Maripol, second day in a row. They said they got the Russians to stop shelling. Now they've got 200,000 people. They want to start, uh, they start to want to get them to evacuate. They get them into the Green Corridor just 45 minutes after the ceasefire was announced in the Green Corridor, artillery shells started falling and hitting the buses. This prompted Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to claim that he has very credible reports of deliberate attacks on Ukrainian civilians by Russian forces. So. What we have here is several attempts facilitated by the UN, by the way. The UN was the people that were getting the buses. Because the thing about these, these things, when you start talking about humanitarian operations, and particularly with, with distressed populations, this, this is an area I have a little bit of experience in, 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 uh, in Afghanistan. And shit don't happen till the UN shows up and money's flowing. Because you can provide a bus, but who's buying the gas for that bus? This is the kind of stuff that was, that was, uh, that was absolutely infuriating trying to get these uh, uh get the gears the gears grease and rolling and the only thing that does that is is the un because the un is not is very liberal with uh, with other people's money they're 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 pretty good now 
with the, the one thing that I want to say about all this coverage that I'm seeing to include the marked enthusiasm of, of Americans supporting the Ukrainians, they want to volunteer to go over and fight our, our, uh, our very strange and peculiar senators calling for the, the head of, of the Russian dictator or whatnot, is that I'm, I've been kind of leery of this. We've all been, but we're, we're falling into structural information traps, okay, which are, consists of three things. The first is emotionally charged images, images that overwhelm your reason, dead kids, wounded women, stuff like that, or very, very, very attractive looking women grabbing their, their Kalishnikov and heading towards the front. That's those kind of emotionally charged images you gotta be wary of. You gotta beware the treatment of dissent or criticism as treason. When this thing started off, I articulated that I believe Putin had a case to be made given the fact that, you know, we did overthrow you know, elected government and that kind of stuff. And I quickly retracted that once he once he invaded and crossed the line of departure. But there's plenty of people who are saying, we need to back up a little bit and respect what he's got issues with. And they, in the public sphere, the intellectuals, any backsliding or any expression of any type of sentiment favorable to Russia is results in, in, in a... a um, basically calling a painting them with a treason. It's just like the old racist much. And finally, anybody that has this, we get this delusion when we watch our national command authority that they've got mastery over a complex crisis. Anybody right now that indicates any degree of mastery over this unfolding crisis is delusional. I mean, it's you're just not going to see it. So when you see these three things, you've got to be wary because I, as an American, and I'm fully on board with the Ukrainians. I would go over there and fight if I thought I could pull it off. I mean, I, I'm I'm all about them. But what I'm not seeing from our leadership our, at, the, at the national level is sobriety, responsibility, probiety, diplomatic skills. Those kind of things are most useful in this kind of a charged environment. And instead, what we get is trembling emotion, cheap propaganda, wild fantasies about assassinating Putin, and a refusal to dialogue and de-escalate. And that is going to bite us in the ass, and I'm off my high horse. I don't... Are we refusing dialogue and to de-escalate? De He's not talking to anybody. So I don't, I mean, what, what do you mean by that? I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it at the, at the opinion level, the, the Sunday talk show level, uh, well, the fuck. national Come leadership on. Like, level. What are you fucking, These are what you why need would to you waste saying? your time? Um, since you started, um, headline, NATO nations can send jets to Ukraine. Ban yeah. on imports of Russian oil being discussed. Live updates. NATO countries supporting Ukraine against Russian invasion have a green light to send spider jets as part of their military aid, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said on Sunday. The push for more air support comes as Russia battered a string of Ukrainian southern cities, throttling evacuation efforts and leading to a rising number of civilian deaths and displacements. Um, anyway, uh, interesting. Interesting stuff. And we'll see what Vladimir Putin has to say about that, right? Vladimir yeah. Putin has to say about that. So, so yeah, that's just in, in the last few minutes. So, Timmy, uh, um, the whole kabuki dance of allowing refugees and this whole agreement is a kabuki dance by Russia uh, to seem favorable, and then whenever it, it gets going, um, they get they get shelled. Yeah, that's ex that's exactly what's happening. Um, I, I I didn't mention this because it's, it's almost too ridiculous to mention. But 
The Russians contend these are separatists, or not, excuse me, these are those rebels uh, uh, shelling them, trying to make it, Russia look bad. Russia's telling, right. is, is saying basically Ukrainians are shelling them themselves. Of course, it's, it's not going to be hard to, to determine the truth on that one. But that kind of bullshit line has, Russia's been doing that for 70 years. Right. I mean, so they seem to be b- back in form. And they may want to, at the national strategic level of Russia, they may well want to establish these corridors and evacuate some of these people. I'm not really sure why, given their propensity to use them to put stress on the system. Right. They may want to, but but at the at the tactical level, the Russian troops, they're not, they, they don't seem to be getting the message. And uh, I don't think it's, I, and I don't think it's surprising. It's what you would expect. Right. I think it's something we predicted. No, it's a, like it's, days it's, ago. It's their yeah. playbook, right? But yeah, just so everybody is. knows, when you see these agreements, um, it's 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 again, it's Russian um, information warfare, right? Mm-hmm. We're reasonable, and then the shelling that happens, as Timmy just said, gets blamed on somebody else. So mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, how about the military situation? And again, for, for, for those of you that, that are following this, um, the links the links that you'll find in, in this post are really good information. Uh, honestly, if, if you follow them, um, you know, this, uh, there's, a, there's a Reddit blog that's, that's really good. Um, and then the BBC and the New York Times, their maps. I mean, if you want to see about as good as it, you can see, um, I would tell you to, 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 to click on those links and follow them. Uh, they're really good. So with that said, Jeffrey, you want to update us on the operational situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, big thing that happened was the airport was destroyed, I guess, in Kiev by a series of uh, missile strikes by the Russians overnight. And, uh, and that's going to have issues, you know, that's going to involve uh, resupply and... Uh, People getting in and out of there and so forth. The uh, the big uh, besides all the just the staunch resistance that the Ukrainians have been showing is they've been using effectively the uh, drones and mostly drones they got from Turkey. Which uh, I mean, I remember uh, when I first started working the job I have now, we were worried about drone strikes on uh, Marine advisor teams and Al Assad and um, Takadam. And they did not materialize. They were never really used against them. You know, they're used against uh, some other issue. You know, some other places in the Middle East, but not really against them. But the uh, Ukrainians have taken these drones, these Turkish gro- drones specifically, which is like a derivative of the old uh, MV ones and stuff they used to have, and uh, and use them effectively. And they're destroying a shitload of uh, Russian equipment. And this is something that may, uh, you know, that uh, it's like a new turn in warfare. Because even though we knew this thing could happen, it never really manifests itself in real casualties until this thing here. Now it's dramatic. I mean, the Ukrainians are scoring big hits with these uh, with these Turkish drones, and so um, that's a big deal. the uh, The other thing is, uh, I'd, I'd say is. Um, the Russians are starting to bear down a little bit more. Like uh, they weren't really um, being as uh, um, Stalinistic as they used to be. Like, like as they were in Hungary, as they were even as they were in, in the Ukraine and in uh, you know and in uh, in uh, God damn it, um, 
Chesnia. No, yeah, Chesnia, but also in uh, you know, Georgia. Georgia. You know, Georgia, right. And, and so, but they are starting to, it seems like they're starting to lean that way now, you know, and uh, the, so there's a little bit more pressure. It's just that it's just so ineffective when you're dealing with a situation like this to be, to go slow, you need to go faster. And I don't think, and we talked about this yesterday, I don't think that uh, Putin can get his guys to go slow, faster because again, he's a guy with a, he's a guy with a Fairmock mentality dealing with a, crappy military that this doesn't seem to be able to make it happen for him. So that's what I'd say about that. Got it. Let me just, um, uh, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of little, uh, also gains, you know, some of these places like, uh, um, in the, uh, there's incremental gains around, uh, the, the, uh, the city of Kiev, you know, and, uh, but you don't, I mean, it's, but, it's not, uh, by who? wondering why Inch- isn't it what, Jeff, Inch- by the Russians, by the, by Russian, the Russians, right. Yeah, and you're wondering why there isn't why isn't it more um, you know robust? That's the big question. What it it can't be by design. You know, this is there's no nothing. The, the way to do this thing and make it work good would be a lightning strike that uh, that that presented the Ukrainians with a fate accompli in a, in a couple of different uh, situations, and that is not what's happened. What's happened is a slow, incompetent. You know, uh, films of, uh, you know, Russian guys running out of gas and stuff like that, you know, and, uh, you know, through the week, through the days. And here we are now going into the second week and they're not really making good progress. That's an issue because a lot of this is, uh, you know, not just for uh, Ukrainian and Russian consumption. It's also for world consumption. Right. When they see the incompetence of this, it, it lessens their effectiveness, especially when it appears that, you know, according to reports, that uh, you know, Putin is looking to push up beyond. Maybe he has ambitions in regards to Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia and also Poland and you know Moldavia, you know, which is just south of here. You know, so and all these guys are they're girding up their loins now. You know, because of the uh, lack of um, competence, I'd say. You know, of the of the Russian forces. Yeah, let me just. Uh, th- these are some BBC headlines. Um, a lull in major ground offensives around key cities, including the capital of Kiev. Uh, heavy bombing reported in Irpin on the outskirts of the capital. And Irpin, I believe, is northwest of Kiev. A ceasefire right. announced uh, that Timmy talked about in Mirapool collapses for the second time. So, again, you, I think everybody understands what that is. Ukraine accuse, accuses Russia of striking hospitals, nurseries, and schools. That's, that's in fact, that's what they do. And listen to this. Ukrainian counteroffensive near Kharkiv reportedly reaches the Russian border. And again, that's not I know, that's, that's not amazing. straight voltage from Twitter. That's the BBC yeah. reporting that, right. right? And so again, if you go to if you follow the link um, around uh, that's on the website, you'll 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 go to this page, and some of it's uh, amazing. Uh, one other item is. Um, American sources say they do not believe an amphibious an amphibious operation against uh, Odessa is imminent. So that was pretty that was interesting. I thought because you've seen uh, things uh, said about that repeatedly. Right. Um, and then uh, one other thing: Russia has launched about six hundred missiles since the start of the invasion. 
right? And by that they mean ICBMs, right? Uh, Right. Senior U.S. defense officials say 95% of the pre-stage combat has gone already into Ukraine. So, so that interesting. Uh, I want to talk about the drone thing. Uh, if you've watched, if you know, Mac, if, if, if you know Mac, if I could just sure. interject a little bit. Um, when I was a kid, there was this book that came. Uh, there's a movie that came out in the '60s called Taras Bulba. T A R A S, the first name, and Bulba B U L B A, and it was about Cossacks, and the Cossacks' homeland was the Zaporozhye. Zapro that, that area that we've been, I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that right. You know, the Zaporozhye area. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're Ukrainian. By, yeah. And uh, they made a movie out of it in the late 60s with uh, Yul Brenner was uh, Terrace Bulba. Tony Curtis was one of his sons. And some other guy, I can't remember, was the other son. And it was about fighting against the Poles. But that's the homeland of the Cossacks is a, a significant part of it. The Zappros, that, that area there produces um, hardcore, they're kind of like half uh, influenced by the Mongols, half influenced by you know Russia. They're Christian, and uh, they're anti-Pole, anti-government um, you know, type force, the Cossacks. So it's just, a, it's an interesting to me, as, as we go through this, as you've remarked, you know, Mac, that uh, we, we've come across these names that are familiar to us, from other uh, you know, issues, you know, mm-hmm. for World War II and so forth. So, yeah, it's just one other thing. All right. The, um, and again, I think everybody is unsure what to make of all this. And this goes back to, you know, the how we're getting information and whatnot, right? right. I think it, everybody's not believing that the Ukrainian forces are doing what they seem to be doing. Because if you look at the map, right, Again, now we're 11 days in. One city has fallen. And and it's stunning to right. look at a map of this and and you look and you see Kharkiv. And again, Kharkiv, you know, is is might be the closest major city to a border. Well, yeah, I think. You know, and it's still it, it still has not fallen. And you go down the eastern side of Ukraine, uh Luhansk, Donetsk, Mariupol, Kyrgyzstan's the only city that's fallen, Odessa, right? And Kiev right. still has not right. fallen, and so you know it's like, what do you what do you believe? And then you read that the the Ukrainian air force is still in, in, intact and is contesting the the skies. Uh, you read right. about you read about their drone stuff and their special forces success, and you're just watching it going. You know, dare right. I dare I believe that the Ukrainians right have fought the Russians to a stalemate within the first two weeks. And 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 what yeah. and what and what will we see next? So um, and you said it and you said it before. You said it like two days ago, I think. You said we have to pay attention to Russia because they have all these nukes. On the other hand, um, you know their 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 threats seem empty when they can't even bring these guys to heal. Like you're just saying, you know what I mean? Like the. You know what I'm saying? It's like the threats of nukes and stuff like that. If you guys can't even bring these uh, Ukrainians to heal, how, how can? Why should we take you so seriously? We're not going to discount you, but you know, really, yeah. are you going to go to war? Well, no. Gonna... And again, I think what you said yesterday, Jeff, is is pretty um, 
was 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 spot on, and that is, um, you know, he's trying to play Adolf Hitler, you know, right. without the without the Wehrmacht, you know, right. And right. and and it's, it it does it it certainly is not playing well publicly um, for uh, for for Russia. And so and now the next question is, and I, and I want to get you know I want to get your thoughts to me on, on the drone thing, but I also right. uh, just throw this out there. You know, you cannot execute a visa transaction in Russia. MasterCard, American Express, uh, Netflix just shut down. You can't, the, the stock market shut down. If he opens the stock market, they'll look at their statements and everything's gone. You know, Russia has been electronically isolated by the free world. And you just had a Russian, uh, I guess, a BP tanker pull into the UK with Russian oil. And, and the dock workers refused to unload it. Right. So sometimes wow. simple solutions to complex problems. Yeah, I don't know who you're going to get to unload this shit, but we will not do it. And so um, so again, um, if if the Ukrainians can continue to resist, how long can Russia, how long will the Russian people stand for this? Again, attacking with, with who, people who they consider are, are, are is, an, is, is a friendly nation towards them. And in spite of what their president says. So, uh, but I want to, so I talk about that and, and also the drone thing. Tim, any thoughts on the drone thing? Uh, I saw an article and I sent it to Tim and Jeff, but the, they're using a, a drone called the Punisher that they've developed inside, right. that SF guys right. inside of Ukraine have developed. And uh, so, uh, Tim, any thoughts on, on, on the way they're using drones? Well, you know, at this thing first started, one of the things that we were remarking about was how weird this was to see the ukrainians perform this well militarily because in 2014 they ran away literally melted away didn't didn't even pretend to make up a shot a, a fight but after that humiliating defeat apparently a bunch of veterans from their special forces got together formed a company called ua dynamics and are making their own drones and and they've got what they call a predator drone and it, it seems to be able to, to to fly relatively long distances you know, when we talk drones, we're talking the, the high-end expensive shit like that. This is regular people's drones that can carry about three kilograms of explosives and go no more than 100 miles, I'm sure, from looking at the size of it. But it's only seven point, you know, it's a 7.5 foot wingspan. It can stay aloft for hours at 1,300 feet and you can't see the damn thing because it's too small. And so I like seeing that in 2014, the Ukrainians went back and started preparing then for what they knew was going to become inevitable, and the part of that was was building their own drones, and and that's uh, that certainly takes any kind of pressure away from them. If Turkey suddenly gets cold feet because they're getting pressure from Russia, and and stops sending those Bayraker uh, drones, so I, 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 He's, let, let me ask I'm you a question. So I mean, you know? I'm looking at that article. Three kilograms is a little bit more than six and a half pounds. Yeah, what, yeah. What, six and a half pounds of of TNT is equal to what level of explosive? 60 mortar, 81 mortar? Well, I, I think that's what they're dropping. I think that's oh, what yeah, they're dropping is mortar rounds. Yeah, it's a it's an 81. Yeah. But it's precision. It's precision. Yeah, but but is 80, it is it is it is it akin to the 60 mortar, the 81 millimeter mortar? Just to give people an idea. I think it's like the 81. I think it's like the 81. And I'll yeah. tell you that, um, if when it hits you dead on, it's bad. <laughs> The, the, we always use our mortars as area, you know, stuff, you know, to uh, right. 
and they're lethal. They're lethal. You could put 250, uh, 81 millimeter mortar platoon put eight, could put you know 150 rounds in the air before the first hits the ground. So when it hits, it fucking hurts if it's accurate. You know, so I'm just saying, you know, the uh, this is different. You know, and again, I, I don't know. And again, I don't know if they're dropping these. I don't know. So, Tim, in the article, does it say are they dropping them or do they pancake? Do they pancake the drone in the target? I I think they're dropping them based on what I've seen using these kind of drones in the past in in the in the Middle East, uh-huh. quite frankly. And so and and, but and again, I've seen them drop normally. Normally, it's a cluster of grenades. Or right. sometimes they'll drop a a, a a mortar round. But again, but I think that's against kind of fixed targets, right? And so oh, yeah. these things they program but it, them um, from when they launch them, and so it's they're it's not a tracking signal that they, that they need. So therefore, it's it's I don't want to say impervious to being disrupted, but the only thing that that it, that it needs is a GPS signal, right? And it's going right. to drop its ordinance, right. and so it's it's more it's sustainment stuff, fuel that's fixed, right? It's, it's, depots it's, it's fixed right it seems like these guys are you put direct fire on somebody you push them into a defilade you already have registered and then that's where you drop the drone shit where uh so in other words they're uh you know they're being pushed into defilade they think is safe and really that's where you know your fucking uh your drones are going to hit them with uh you know those those uh explosives you know and so that's the way that, you know, you, we're always... But, but I think the, 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 the problem, though, Jeff, in, in, in this peer competition is right. is if you're controlling it, right, that means there's a signal going back to you. And, and if they know right. where you are, right, they'll, they'll drop one of those scuds on your ass. And so, right. you know, the offsetting, you know, antennas becomes important. And then that's why this, this kind of fire and forget mode of drone use... And and I think the article that I read said, which lent itself to more fixed sight stuff, not dynamic stuff. Right. They can do dynamic stuff, targets that are moving and stuff. But the way they've used them is on these uh, on, on on Russian fuel and and Russian logistics, and uh, right. which to me to me is very very interesting that this would be homegrown, and uh, I think it would be fascinating to listen to you know, the Ukrainian, you know, defense and what they're doing. I mean, I, I'd really, really love, because again, right. w- when you see this lack of movement on the map, you know, it's almost like you, you sit there and think, I know the Russians at some point are going to crush them. But, and then you're like right. hoping against hope, like, and then like, well, what the fuck are they doing to hold them off? And this whole, right. idea, this, they counterattack from Kharkov, right? To the border. Yes. And, and that's, again, the BBC that's, reporting that's good that. solid tactics. Yeah, that's the BBC report. The BBC well, reporting that. When you're too weak to defend, you attack. You know that's the thing. Oh yeah, that always works. You know, and and uh, or at least if you're confident. You know, the other thing is uh, the uh, what you're uh, to to you know to address what you're saying, which is absolutely true. The uh, the fact that um, um, you know. You you have to, you have this t- new technology. You want to guard it, so you, you make people think you're using new technology, and then you use old tactics, and and, and score a big one. You know what I mean? And that's the uh, that's where all the stuff with the older drones and the eighty ones and the mortars and stuff like that comes into play. You know, apparently there's no better teacher than the actual experience the Ukrainians are going through now. Yeah. 
Oh, and the confidence that they get that hey, hey, we can do this. These guys aren't anything special. Right. They're they're, right. they're not right. even they're not even as good as us. There's just more of them, and and we can take care of that. And so, right. um, but I'll tell you what this. Um, what do you think Putin does relative to um, this? Again, it's just weapon sales, right? So so right. weapon sales from NATO to the Ukraine are legal. Right from any country to Ukraine, those are legal, right? Well, that, I've I've got the answer to what Putin's going to do. You what? ready? Yeah, yeah. The use of airfield networks in these countries to base Ukrainian military air, aircraft and their subs, subsequent use against the Russian armed forces will be regarded as involvement of these states in an armed conflict. So he's rattling that. You support them? We consider that an act of war. That could be yeah. saber rattling, but it again, could, that's it, it but could be brickmanship. right? Yeah. Selling, selling, is, sell, we're talking is, about selling weapons. We're not talking about basing. We're talking about selling weapons. So it, it's like it, it's like Jeff and Will talking about a redoubt. We're going to sell you weapons. That's legal, right? That's not an act right. of war, right? The Russians sell weapons to our adversaries all the time. It's not an act of war. It's just something that you know you do as a as a free nation. You can sell to any whoever you want. Right. But if you're ho- if you're hosting those aircraft, that's a different issue. And did it, does right. he does he use the word hosting, basing? What is he, he says? Oh, he said also that Russia is aware of Ukrainian combat plans, which earlier flew to Romania. I think he meant planes. Earlier okay. flew to Romania and other neighboring countries. He didn't elaborate that, implicating that they're already using those air forces, airfields in other countries. That might explain the mystery as to how the hell they've got fast movers still up and and flying. So what 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 he specifically said, and I'm and I'm reading a quote, is is those countries, if they base Ukrainian military aircraft and their subsequent yeah, yeah, use yeah. against Russian air forces, that's what they're going to regard as as uh, involvement in in the armed conflicts. So that's well, listen to this. You can parse listen that this, a number of ways. Listen to this. Then listen to this. Every bellicose claim he issues, every threat he issues, is mitigated by the fact that his people have been incompetent up to this point. Right. And so consequently, you know, people are going to, you know, it, it's not like he's like pushing into Alsace-Lorraine, or, you know, he took over Poland. You know, I mean, he's not shown effectiveness. And consequently, it makes his threats less effective, because People are like, well, what the fuck, man? You're not that good, you know? You're not that. Well, I'll use my nukes. Yeah, well, we got nukes too. No, and, and, you know, no. When you do it you know, from a position of weakness, you know, you're right, Jeff. Doesn't yeah, ha- right, doesn't have the same right. impact. Uh, listen to this: Denmark to boost defense spending and phase out Russian gas. So this drumbeat continues of greater isolation and uh, and 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 greater like European independence from. Uh, his great, his great, you know, desire to compromise them, and uh, so again, you're seeing more and more of this in Europe, and uh, again, I, it, it's just, it's stunning to watch, and uh, yeah, and, and you try to check yourself from getting too excited over the fact that, you know, if if the Ukrainian military can continue this, right, and 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 the world and the business world continues to isolate Russia, you know, what is possible in Europe? What might right. what comes after this? Ukraine, the Ukraine as part of NATO, or will the Ukraine say, "Hey, fuck off! We don't need to be part of you. You know, we'll do business with you, but you, you know, you left us out to dry." Um, and and then Russia would have you nothing. Know, Russia, a diminished Russia, would have nothing to say about it. 
What I mean, might that this, possibly man. happen? And, and you're absolutely right. You're absolutely and geopolitically, look at this. So everybody's looking at China now, thinking they're using this to as a gauge to to see whether they get into Taiwan without too much problem. Do their own thing in Taiwan, be you know, isolated while they invade. But I think even more uh, pressing is the fact that uh, the Iranians will uh, push into Iran, into Iraq. Because right now, half the Shia militia groups, which are lousy all over Iraq right now, are half of them are no shit, just good force. They're just Iranians. If they were to, to say, we're taking over and you have to throw all the Americans out and all that stuff, that would be, you know, there's like a, there's like a, almost like an axis that's forming. You already know there's a firm alliance between Russia, Russia and China now regarding this. Everybody who's against the West can line up now and say, this is what we're doing. And the reason why we're doing it is because, you know, the United States is, is uh, not showing itself effective regarding the Russians. On the other hand, um, it'd be stupid for us to fight, to put troops in there, you know, but uh, we should have probably beefed up the Iraq, the uh, Ukrainians a long time ago, you know, but we didn't. And so now we're faced with this situation we're in now. And I think that's the writ large. I think that's how this is going to go. You know? Interesting. Interesting. All right. Um, there was one more story. What, um, all right. What are you looking for in the next 24 hours? As we wrap this up, Tim. Well, I'm. I've still got my eyes on Kiev. From what I can tell, from looking at, and I and I to get the detailed stuff, uh, I'm looking at the Institute for the Study of War. They've got pretty good maps and stuff. But um, um, based on their reporting, they seem to be focused more on what the Russians' armies are are doing. Anything else? They feel that uh, that the Russians are going to try to to complete the encirclement of Kiev from both the east and the west, and I'll be looking within the next 24 to 48 hours to see a sign that that's even a possibility, because all we've seen so far is is their their part. They don't seem to be that dynamic. They don't seem to be seizing much territory. They just seem to be shelling civilians and killing a lot of people, which unfortunately is right within their mo. Uh, you know, so that's all, I, that's all you can do. The longest, the longest so, so, Kiev, in the, so in the next 24 hours, you're looking for? I'm looking for the Kiev, more action in Kiev, more of an indication that they want to take that capital and, and complete their encirclement, which, again, complete the encirclement doesn't mean shit to, to the Ukrainians or to you or to me. But I'm just interested to see if that's what they're going to continue to try to do because it's so goddamn confusing trying to make sense out of what you're seeing. No. Jeff, what are you looking for in the next 24 hours? I pretty much agree with Tim, except I think they're going to, uh, terror attacks are going to uh, heighten more murder of civilians to try and, um, that's the Russian playbook, man, to try and uh, intimidate the people and just acquiesce in this thing. And, uh, and, and also to, uh, you know, Make people lose effective, make people lose confidence in the ability of their government to protect them. And I have to tell you, I think they're wrong. I think you're going to lose this one because this guy, um, Zelensky, and his folks, they're, they're in it to win it. It seems like they're, they're fucking, 
they, they don't give a shit if they die or whatever, you know. And so that's the impression they're giving out. It, it makes them, it makes the, the, the uh, you know, the Russians look horrible, horrible. And, and right now, oh, Putin's putting off signals that he could give a shit, and maybe he doesn't. But, uh, you know, it's going to show, it's going to show itself. It already has. I think Putin Putin right now is the definition of bold talk from one-eyed fat man. Um, In the the famous words of Ned Pepper, I mean, I think, I mean, and I'll tell you what, and he's watching it like, I'm sure like a hawk, and this thing is not going as designed. And and so so to me, in the next 24 hours, I'm looking for more indications and warnings that the Ukraine army is more formidable than anybody thought. Right. And that's why this drone stuff and that's why, you know, can we, you know, delivering aircraft to them that then the the aircraft that got blown up was in was southwest of um, Kiev by I think by a couple hundred miles. And so the question is, why did they annihilate that? Is that where they believe, um, you know, aircraft are being staged? And so I would look to see more of that. But the other thing, uh, in addition to indications and warnings that the the Russian, um, uh, that the Ukrainian military is better than we initially thought. The, the other p- part of that is w- how long will Russia, right, hang together and as, 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 as a people and, and support this, given the way that the international community, not only governments, but businesses, have essentially, in a very, very unprecedented way, to, and, and Jeff pointed out, um, or Tim pointed out to include Swiss banks, who said, "Yeah, we've frozen their stuff," which didn't even happen in World War II. So it, right. it's how long can Russia um, do this? So anyway, all right, boys. Well, first of all, uh, on a Sunday, thank you very much, and I appreciate you hopping on here and doing this and and your and your expertise. And uh, I'm not sure what time I'm supposed to fly to Germany tomorrow, but if it's later in the day, I will let you. As soon as I find out, I'll let you know, and maybe we can. Maybe we can record something early or something like that. So uh, stand by. So st- stand by yeah. to stand by, and then uh, and then cool. uh, I will talk to you. But thank you very much. Well, say, say hey, hey, get get some trip insurance for this one. You know, you could stray over that German border some. <laughs> want to hook? You want to hook Colleen up if something happens? There you go. Where, there you go. where are you going? Where are you going in Germany, man? Uh, Ramstein. So oh uh, yes, <laughs> I know it well. Um, I know it well. <laughs> no. Yes, I do. Yeah, so it's and about, now Mel. Yes. So now Just, it's uh, about hopefully, uh, if I fly to LAX and, and and you get direct flights to Frankfurt, it's about eleven hours. If you gotta change planes, it's about sixteen. So I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that the Air Force likes me and and wants me to show up and and will get me on a direct flight. Um, and so anyway, but go to go to Kai. Go to Kaiserstrasse when you're in there, and don't tell him I told you so. God, God. I think I think according to Fred travel regulations, if you're flying longer than nine hours, you get a business upgrade. Because by definition, they want you functional when you arrive. I would remind the Air Force about that shit too, because they don't forget when they're getting their own tickets. Well, they seem to they seem to like me. Frankfurt and what's kind of yeah. c- central Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be in business right, class, bro. West, West Central Germany, um, kind of towards, uh, not too far from Luxembourg, right? Luxembourg? Yeah. Well, if they like you, they'll not put you on an American carrier. They'll put you on a foreign flag carrier because theirs are so much nicer for international flights. And uh, put you in the business class, which is uber nice. Lufthansa. But you don't want to go 
on an American flight because yeah, those those suck overseas. They're just a yep. drag. <laughs> they charge you for yeah. everything. They're just ridiculous. Whoa, yeah. whoa! Yeah, when they flew me when they flew me home from Afghanistan, my dad was sick. They um, they put me in the, the the pilot said, "Who are you?" I go, "I'm Jeff Kenny." They just finished strip searching me for the third time, you fucking Kuwaiti. And he said, uh, <laughs> "Jeff Kenny, okay." And when I got on there, the, the stewardess brought me from coach all the way up to uh, business. It was like being in my own room. It's like a bed almost. You know, yeah, incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're nice when they when they up. I, I got upgraded to first class on an Emirates Air flight from San Francisco to Dubai. I didn't want to get out of the damn thing. I was <laughs> that was. I've never been treated so. It was just I tried to change my residence that. To yeah, that I could have stayed. I could have stayed in that little pod for a long, long time, man. That <laughs> shit was nice. They were pouring man. champagne in my mouth and fucking. Eating I was pouring champagne. I was Con drunk and full of shit. And I <laughs> next thing I knew, I'm in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> drunk, I, I called drunk, my dad. Drunk and full I, of shit in Dallas. I called my I, dad. I, was, I had been hungover and sobered up by then. I was fine. <laughs> That's how good it was. <laughs> uh, all right, boys. Thank you very much. I'll be yeah, in man, touch. I'll talk to you soon, bro. Yep. Thank you. That'll do it on a Sunday. Yeah, I don't. I don't say that very often. Um, my thanks to Will for taking time out of his driving, and then Tim and Jeff for coming on and and uh, you know talk about things that, with a little bit of nuance so that you can understand better those those you know evacuation corridors that's those when you see that that's russian information operations nobody's going anywhere and then uh, the drone thing very interesting and my thanks to jeff for taking a harder look at that and then uh and then uh he and timmy both for uh for uh you know just uh just taking it and uh, and kind of pulling it apart. It's 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 fascinating what the Ukrainians have done with those drones and produced them in house. Uh, for if this ever came to be, you know, how they would have to defend themselves, given the rest of the international community's reluctance to uh, arm them. So, well done. So on that note, have a great day. Um, again, not sure on my flying plans. To Germany and so if we have a chance we'll certainly do something um, until then I'm Mike McNamara the Submarine Radio um, keep the Ukrainian people and their military in your thoughts and prayers and uh, hopefully you know nations from around the world will continue um, to put pressure on the Russian government and then ultimately the Russian people uh, will exercise with great courage, right? We'll let it be known that they don't support this. So, with that thought in mind, have a great Sunday. I'm Mike McNamara. Mac to my friends. I'm out.